Chapter Thirteen, Part Two of the Cruise of the Esmeralda. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marty on the Central Coast of California. The Cruise of the Esmeralda by Harry Collingwood. Chapter Thirteen, Part Two. It may be readily imagined that when next I had an opportunity to observe the men I watched them individually and collectively, most closely. Yet, beyond the trivial circumstance that conversation always ceased if I had happened to approach, I could detect nothing in the men's demeanor to lend the slightest color to Joe's supposition. True, two or three of them, the Frenchman, the Portuguese, and the German, for instance, now impressed me as being scarcely so civil in their behavior as they had been when they first joined the ship. But that, after all, might only be my fancy. And if it were not, one hardly looks for such good behavior from foreigners as one is wont to receive from Englishmen. As for Joe Martin, he began his operations bright and early on the morning following his conversation with me. He was now the ship's carpenter and in that capacity he had received orders on the previous day to fit a new set of stern-sheets in the port quarter boat. This job he began the first thing in the morning, swinging her inboard and lowering her to the deck for his greater convenience during the progress of the work. This simple matter he managed so clumsily that he contrived to bilge the boat, necessitating the renewal of three timbers and a plank. I was on deck at the time of the accident, and, forgetting for the moment his scheme to provoke a seeming quarrel with me, I cautioned him about the awkward, lubberly way in which he was proceeding, and recommended him to get more help. He replied, in an off-hand, careless way, that he was quite man enough to do such a job as that without anybody's help. And as he spoke, down came the boat with a crash, and the damage was done. The whole thing seemed such a piece of pig-headed stupidity that I was thoroughly exasperated with the fellow and gave him a good sound rating, much, apparently, to the amusement of the other men. Joe said nothing by the way of excuse. Indeed, any attempt to excuse himself would have been so wholly out of place as only to have increased his offense. But he slouched away forward muttering to himself, and I noticed him stop and say a word or two to a couple of men who were at work upon the forecastle. Then I remembered his proposal, and bethought me that this might be his way of carrying out his plan. If so, I could not help admiring his ingenuity, albeit still decidedly annoyed with him for the powerful realism with which he was playing his little comedy. The boat lay as she had fallen for fully an hour. Meanwhile Joe had vanished. This cool behavior on his part nettled me still more, and at length I directed the boatswain to pass the word for Joe to come aft, upon which Joe made his appearance, obviously from the forecastle, wearing that sulky, sullen look that always exasperated me more thoroughly than anything else, whenever I met with it in a man. I am afraid I am rather a short-tempered individual at times. And I gave him such a wigging as four hours earlier I would not have believed possible ordering him not to waste any more time, but to set to work at once to repair the damage occasioned by his clumsiness. Whether or no Joe began to guess from my manner that he had gone a trifle too far, I know not. 
but he at once went to work as I had ordered him, and worked, moreover, with such a will that by eight bells in the afternoon watch the damage was repaired and the boat as good as ever she was, save for a lick of paint over the new work. This want Joe now proceeded, with a great show of zeal, to supply, procuring a pot of paint and a brush, with which he came bustling aft. Now, if there is one thing upon which I pride myself more than another, it is the scrupulous cleanliness of my decks. Conceive, therefore, if you can, the extremity of my disgust and annoyance when I saw Joe catch the naked toes of his right foot in the corner of a hen-coop and in his agony dropped the pot of paint upon my beautifully clean poop, of course spilling the whole contents. It is true that, forgetting his pain the next moment, he dropped upon his knees and contrived, by scooping up the spilled paint in the palms of his hands, to replace a considerable proportion of it in the pot. But after he had done his best with canvas and turpentine, a horrible, unsightly blotch still remained to mar the hitherto immaculate purity of the planks, and it is therefore not to be wondered at if I had again administered a sound and hearty rating to the culprit, this time in the presence and hearing of all hands. It was all the more vexatious to me that, instead of expressing any contrition for his carelessness, Joe persistently maintained the surly demeanor he had exhibited more or less throughout the day. My anger, however, was short-lived, and by the time that I had had an hour or two for reflection, I could not help feeling that I had been decidedly harsh and severe with the fellow for what was practically his first offense. Moreover, he had always hitherto behaved so exceedingly well, and had proved himself such a splendid workman that he had become a great favorite with me. When, therefore, during dinner, Sir Edgar made some half-jesting remark about Joe's misdeeds, I was far more disposed to make excuses for the man than to maintain a semblance of that annoyance I had so conspicuously exhibited during the day. Nevertheless, I deemed it politic to do the latter, particularly while the steward was about, as I felt that, if the rest of the men were indeed traitors, the steward was probably the same and would, in any case, be pretty certain to repeat in the forecastle whatever might be said in the cabin as to Joe's misdemeanors. It was Joe's trick at the wheel that night for the first half of the first watch, but, as the passengers were about the deck during the whole time, I made no attempt to enter into confidential communication with him, and I had no other opportunity that night. On the following day his misdeeds were not quite so egregious but he still contrived to behave like a man who considered himself aggrieved, and when his trick at the wheel came round again, during the first half of the afternoon watch, he steered so carelessly and ran the ship off her course so abominably that I had at last to send him away from the wheel, and summon another man in his place, taking the fullest advantage at the same time of the opportunity thus afforded to give him another good rating, hot and heavy, as I felt that he intended I should. His turn to grind water came round again at the latter half of the middle watch, and when he came aft at four bells to relieve the wheel, I took care to be at hand with a reminder of his shortcomings during the previous afternoon, and the stern expression of a hope that he would give me no further cause to complain of him, and, not content with that, 
I took up a position near him with an air that was intended to convey to the retiring helmsman my determination to keep a strict eye upon Master Joe's conduct during the remainder of the watch. Joe waited a minute or two to allow the other man to get fairly out of hearing forward, and then remarked, "'I'm afraid, sir, I rather overdone the thing yesterday, a staving in the gig and then a capsize in the paint. If I did, I hope you'll forgive me, sir, and remember as I done it for the best.' "'Overdid it? Did it for the best?' I ejaculated. "'Why, confound you, man! Do you mean to tell me that you did those things intentionally?' "'Of course I did, sir,' answered Joe, and much lower tones than my own, obviously with the intention of putting me on my guard. You see, sir, them chaps forward are pretty cute. They're too old birds to be caught with chaff, and I knew that if I was to get on the blind side of them, it'd have to be by means of throwing you into a genuine, downright passion with me. Besides, if you'll excuse me for saying of it, Captain St. Ledger, you ain't much of a hacker, sir. You're altogether too fair and straightforward and above board to be able to deceive or fight on equal terms with a lot of sharp, sly, underhand, sneaking beggars like them in the forecastle. So says I to myself, Joe, says I, if you wants that crowd to believe as you're out of the skipper's favor, and you're ready to join em in any mischief they may be hatching, you've got to do something to make the cap'em real downright savage with you. And that's why I done it, sir. I'm bound to allow that the capsizing of that there paint was perhaps a coming of a little too strong. But— Oh, that's all right, Joe, I interrupted. There's no doubt about the fact that you succeeded in making me genuinely angry with you. The important question now is, has it had the effect that you anticipated? Have the other men shown any disposition to take you into their confidence and make you a participator in the plot, or whatever it is that you suppose them to be hatching? Well, no, sir, not exactly. Joe admitted, but I'm in hopes that they will afore long, if this here unpleasantness between me and you goes on. At present, you see, they don't know but what it may be a temporary thing, as'll soon blow over. But if they finds that you've got a sort of spite agin me, and are always down upon me and driving me in desperation, as they may say, they'll be pretty certain to have a try to get me over on their side. You see, sir, I'm about as strong as e'er a man aboard here, and if them chaps are up to mischief, They'll naturally prefer to have me with them instead of again em. Undoubtedly they will, I agreed. But, Joe, you've not yet told me exactly what it is you suspect. If they were dissatisfied with their food, or their treatment, or their accommodation, would they not come aft and make a complaint, and endeavor to get the matter rectified in that way? But they never have done so, and indeed I cannot imagine what they have to be dissatisfied with. Their food is all of the very best description it was possible to obtain. The forecastle is as roomy and comfortable a place as you will meet within any ship of this size. And as to work, I do not think they have much to complain of on that score. No, sir, no. It ain't nothing of that sort, asserted Joe. It's my belief, sir, as they've somehow got wind of the treasure, and that it's that thereafter. The treasure? I exclaimed in blank astonishment. What treasure? Why, the treasure as you expects to find on this here island as we're bound for. Lord bless you, sir, continued Joe, noting the consternation that his unexpected communication had occasioned me. We all knowed about it in the forecastle, the old hands, I mean, afore the ship arrived in Sydney Harbor. It was the steward as brought the news forward to us one night. He was a curious chap, he was, as inquisitive as a monkey. 
He always wanted to know the ins and outs of everything that was going on, and he noticed you poring and puzzling over a paper with a lot of figures wrote on it, and a drawing in the middle. And he used to come forward and tell us that you'd been having another try to find out what them figures meant. And one night, it was when we was getting well on toward Sydney, he comes forward in great excitement and says, says he, I'm blowed if the skipper haven't been and found out at last the meaning of that paper that he's been puzzling over during the whole of the blessed voyage. And what do you suppose it is? says he. Well, in course, we said we didn't know, and some of us said we didn't care either, seeing that it wasn't any business of ours. Oh, it ain't, says he. Perhaps you won't say it ain't no business of yours when you know what it is, he says. Well, says one of the men, it were Bill Longman, if you thinks as it concerns us, why don't you up and tell us what it is instead of hanging in the wind like a ship in irons, says he. So then the steward, he tells us how that morning whilst you was at breakfast in the saloon, he heard you telling about a dream you had the night before, and how you started up in the middle of the meal and rushed off to your stateroom and stayed there a goodish while, and then went up on deck and told Sir Edgar as you discovered the meaning of the paper, which was about how to find a treasure that was buried on a desert island somewhere, and that you intended to go on to Sydney and discharge your cargo, and then take in ballast and sail for the Pacific to find this here island and get the treasure. Of course, when he'd finished telling us about it, there was a great palaver about buried treasure, and pretty nigh on every man in the forecastle pretended to have heard of a similar case. And we all agreed, as you was a lucky man, and we'd hoped how you'd find the island and the treasure, too. And by and by, after there had been a good deal of talk of that sort, Bill Longman up and says, But George, he says to the steward, you haven't told us how this here affair concerns us. Oh, well, says George, with a curious kind of laugh, if you don't see how it concerns us, why, of course, there ain't no more to be said, and that was all we could get out of the steward that night. But a night or two afterwards, Master George brings up the subject again by saying that he don't suppose it likely, as you'll offer to share this here treasure with all hands, supposing that you find it. And then he goes on to say that, for his part, he don't see as the treasure's yours any more than anybody else's, and that, in his opinion, if it's ever found, all hands ought to share and share alike. And some of the chaps seemed to think he was right, and others they didn't. And Bill up and says, Look here, George, he says, supposing we gets ashore at Sydney, you was to find a bag of sovereigns in the street. Would you share em with us? George said that'd be a different thing altogether from finding a treasure on a desert island. And we all had a long argument about it, and we couldn't agree. And after that, the steward talked a good deal more about all sharing alike in the treasure and that if we was all of one mind, it could be done and a lot of more stuff of the same kind. But we all laughed at him and then came the arrival of the ship in Sydney and George being paid off and after that I heard nothing more about the treasure. And what makes you imagine that the new men have got hold of the story? I asked. Well, sir, said Joe. It's just one or two little things I've overheard said. The first thing has ever made me suspect that there was something up was the mention of the word treasure. Cookie is the man that seems to know most about it. He's everlastingly talking about it, and I fancy he must have fallen in with the steward somewheres ashore and heard the whole story from him. And what has the cook to say about it? I inquired. 
Ah, that's just what I wants to find out, answered Joe. They won't say anything to me about it, but just sits whispering with their heads together away forward in the far end of the forecastle, and I notices as it's always the cook as has the most to say. He and Rogers seems to be the leading spirits in the job, whatever it is. So your little scheme of yesterday has borne no fruit thus far, I suggested. Well, not much, said Joe, but then I don't expect them to take me into their secrets right off the reel the first time that I misbehave myself, but I believe they'll have a try to get me in with them before they tries to carry out their plans. Last night when I was sitting on my chest, grumbling and growling at the way I'd been treated during the day, the cook wanted to know whether I wouldn't rather be a rich man than have to go to sea for the rest of my days. But Roger stopped him with a look and said, Now, doctor, you leave Joe alone and don't go putting no nonsensical notions into his head. You leave him to me. Perhaps I may have something to say to him myself by and by, and I don't want nobody to interfere at all in this here matter. And that's how the thing stands at present. Very well, said I. You have told me enough to satisfy me that your conjectures are by no means as groundless as I suppose them to be, and you must do your best, Joe, to find out what you can. But you will have to be very careful what you are about. It is clear enough that if they meditate treachery of any kind, they are not yet at all disposed to trust you, and if they at all contemplate the possibility of winning you over to join them, they will set all manner of traps for you and test you in every conceivable way before making up their minds to trust you. Yes, assented Joe. I expect they will, but I'm all ready for them whenever they likes. I've got my course all marked out, clear and straight, and if Rogers or any of the others come sounding me, they'll be surprised to find what a downright bad character I am, and how ready I am to take a hand in any mischief that's brewing. End of chapter 13, part 2